Well, as January comes to a close, how are New Year's resolutions looking? You get out of debt yet? You lower your monthly payments? You start saving some money yet? Well, we can make it happen for you right now with a few quick clicks at SaveWithConrad.com. We're licensed in more than 40 states and now including Connecticut, so we can save more families than ever before. And you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. And I'm talking to you if you're in a 30-year loan. It's not a matter of if we can save you money. It's a matter of how much. I even convinced my dad to cut five years off of his loan this month. And you can do this too. Find out how much money you can save when you take years worth of unnecessary house payments off of your loan. And instead of working for all that money, paying taxes on it and giving it away, no, stick it in your own bank account. Pay yourself, man. That's what we're suggesting that you do with that extra savings. And by the way, if you've got credit card debt, we can help you with that too. No matter what your situation is, if you're looking for a lower monthly payment, if you're looking to get out of that apartment into a new house, maybe you're a veteran and you're not exactly sure what that does for you. How about you can buy a house with no money down? But if you're serious about saving money, there's only so much that clipping coupons is going to do for you. And yes, working extra hours are great, but if you're just putting in all that extra time to pay a crazy high interest rate, what are you doing? Give yourself a life hack, keep more of your own money and skip your next two payments at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And remember, it's no cost, no obligation. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. And even credit scores in the 500s can be approved at savewithconrad.com. What you listening to? Well, you know, that's Preachered Rock. Preachered Rock? Well, turn it up! Look at that! He's sick! It's been too long, glad to be back, so get loose! Come loose! That's can't be hanging around! That's right, it's Preachered Rock, featuring wrestling legend, award-winning podcaster, and the singer of a generation. Singing some of his most classic songs, including this one. We're all American boys. All American boys. We're all American boys. All American boys. Did Bruce ever tell you about the time he was at the China Club and sang this number with Rick James? And Super Freak! Super Freak! I'm Super Freaky! I don't know. I'm super free. Super free. I'm super freaky. You also get Bruce Pritchard's sensitive side. I can come in any kind of weather. That's because my sack is made of leather. I'm so happy. I'm so gay. I can come every day. I'm your mailman. You're welcome. But the name Bruce Pritchard is synonymous with rock and roll. Check out this one. She was a foul machine. She got bold of me. She was the best damn woman that I ever see. And of course, no song collection of any kind would be complete without this number one hit and best-selling single of all time. Spend my days working hard on the go, but hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. It's Pritchard Rock, available now at Music R Us. I'm Rick James, bitch. 
Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. What a rip. No, you have a big There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared. I ain't scared to shit. Fuck you, Bruce. I love To the best of something to wrestle with, Bruce Pritchard, with Conrad Thompson, and of course, Bruce Pritchard. Deep cuts from the early years. I'm Matt Kuhn, and for this week, we have collected what I think are some of the funniest, informative, and entertaining clips from some of the first few episodes. Now, for any other podcast, a best of might be a warning sign, but for one of the greatest podcasts in the history of podcasting, there's so much material there. You might hear something that you might have missed the first time. Without any further ado, let's get to the show. I hate Steven Singer. You heard me. I hate Steven Singer. And all the other jewelers in America hate him too because he's got the best Valentine's gift ever. We're excited to tell you about it. Steven Singer and Something to Wrestle have brought you a real long stem American Beauty Rose. It's been lavishly and deeply dipped in pure 24 karat gold. It will never need water. It will never wilt. It will never die. And this is something unique, special, and lasts forever. It comes with a personalized love note from you all in Steven's signature gift box shipped for free and starting at just 59 bucks right now, go to, I hate That's I hate or the other corner of eighth and Walnut in Philadelphia to see what we're talking about. Real roses from a real jeweler for your real love. And I hate Steven singer.com and something we all love. Let's get right to the show. And for the beginning of this episode, we're going to go all the way to the inaugural episode on dusty roads. Of course, everybody remembers the story about dusty being the second most recognizable athlete in the entire world. But there's a couple stories you might've missed in there. One involves Randy Savage and the other one is a rib from dusty. So let's look at his other big matches when he's there. We roll on to WrestleMania, uh, his very first WrestleMania. And of course, Dusty's credited with creating Starcade, which was the NWA's premiere show. And now he's finally out of WrestleMania. It's WrestleMania six. It's in Toronto. Uh, and he is wrestling the macho King. Uh, how does that come about? This is another match where you just seemingly 
what is going on? Here's a, a WWF guy. And now here is really a guy we all identify as an NWA guy. And maybe, you know, a year or two earlier, this would have been a dream match because both of those guys were near the top of their game. And now, you know, one's in polka dots and one's wearing a crown. What happened? <laughs> it was what you just said. It was two of the stop, top stars in the game. It was Randy and Dusty and, and the characters, the Macho King looking down on everybody. And the guys that the Macho King's looking down upon are the common people. And you got the leader of the common people, the common man, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. And you got Miss Sapphire. And you got uh, Queen Sherry. It was a match made in heaven. And it, it was, uh, I'll tell you a, a great story because I had been out with them during the summer. And it was a mixed tag team match with the Macho King and Queen Sherry against Dusty and Sapphire. In Dusty and Sapphire's corner was Miss Elizabeth. In Savage's corner was Brother Love. Oh, wow. So we did these matches all around the horn, and it was, without a doubt, some of the most fun I have ever had in the business. Because Dusty and I would travel together a lot during that time. I either traveled with with Randy and Liz, or I traveled with Dusty. And, oh, my God, we we just had a blast together, just uh, up and down the roads and, and having a lot of fun. But when we first started this match, we laid out the match. Randy liked to lay things out. We laid out the match. And Dusty dictated a lot of it, if you will. And the match, in short, kind of consisted of myself, Randy, and Sherry running into Dusty's elbow. <laughs> dream, dream didn't move. The elbow just stayed up in position, and our heads found it. I see. And I am having an absolute blast every night. Just working with Dusty, having fun, working with Randy and Sherry and everybody. I mean, we are having a blast. And we're kind of doing the same thing every night, every night, you know, and, and we're doing this for about two, three, four weeks, maybe three weeks. And then we finally get to Hamilton, Ontario, and we got a double shot. So we're doing a show in the afternoon and another uh, show that night in Toronto. Well, Pat Patterson is the agent for both shows, and Pat has not yet seen our match. He says, what have you guys been doing? And he says, well, you know, we'll show you tonight. So we go out or during the day, the first show. So we go out and we have the match and we come back and we're like, what'd you think? And he says, how are you guys getting to Toronto? I said, well, we actually were going to ride with somebody. He says, ride with me. So this is Pat Patterson telling Randy and myself and Liz to ride with him. Right. So we get in the car. He had a, he had a limousine and we get in the car and on the way there, Pat tells us it was one of the worst matches he had ever seen in his wow. life. He says, I hated it. Oh, my God, Randy, you're a WWF champion, and you're out there, and you're bumping all over for him, and you're not getting anything in, and he makes you look like a piece of garbage. And essentially, he's getting Randy fired up. 
Because he's like telling him, he's abusing you and now you're bumping and you're making he doesn't do anything and you're a champion and everybody, they love you. And brother love, what the hell? He goes, you get in for the match, you get in one time, one time only. You got heat. Why you go in and bump all over for him? We think about it. And Pat's telling us everything that's wrong with the match that we laid out that we loved. Right. And he's making sense. He's making a lot of sense. But to be just real blunt, man, we were fans of Dusty, and we were having a good time (laughs) working with the Dream and doing all of his stuff. So he says, let's come up with a different match. So we come up with a completely different match with basically Randy controlling the majority of the match and getting heat on Dusty and Dusty making his comeback and Brother Love gets in at the very end and Dusty gets one shot at Brother Love and that's the finish and and we're out of there. So we get to Toronto and we have this match. Randy and I have this whole match laid out. I mean, we've got it, got it completely laid out. And... Randy says, he's fired up. I mean, he's he's just all bowed up. He's ready to go. And he's like, where's Virgil? Where is he? And he hadn't gotten there yet. Let me know as soon as he gets in and we need to talk to him. So Dusty comes in, puts his bag down. And they say, hey, uh, Dusty's in the back dressing room over there. So we go marching in and, and Randy goes over to, to Dusty. says, Green, we need to talk to you for a minute uh, in here. So we walk around the corner going to the shower. That's where you had all your private meetings. It's in a shower or a bathroom stall. So <coughs> we we get in and Randy starts off by going, Oh uh, yeah. Uh, we were talking to Pat about the match and um uh, he didn't like it and uh, we had we had some changes and things like that and uh we're gonna make some changes tonight. So um Brother Love, go ahead and tell him what the match is. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. And I, I'm looking at Randy like, why me? And go, yeah, go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. And so I lay the match out to Dusty. And Dusty has got his back against the wall in the shower and is looking at me with these giant bug eyes. Doesn't say a word throughout the entire spiel. And we're finished. And Randy's like, okay, what do you think? And Dream just looks at him and says, baby, you know, this is kind of like somebody going in and grabbing Babe Ruth and pulling him in the shower and telling him how to hit the ball, if you will. And there's silence, and Randy says, Well, babe, that's what we're doing tonight. See you in the <laughs> ring. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I mean, it was just classic dusty, and we went out, you know, we tore it up. But, uh, yeah, it, brother, yeah, okay, babe. And from that point on, he was babe to us. And that's amazing. Every night we, we would go out and go, Hey, babe, uh, this is what we're doing. Babe is. You know, that was just typical Dusty. There has to be a fun Dusty rib. 
Since nothing Holy else was cow. a rib, sapphire wasn't a rib, polka dots weren't a rib, there's no such thing as a rib. But Dusty had to have a good sense of humor and rib somebody. Dusty had no. Dusty had a great sense of humor. I, I don't know. Well, it was a rib on me, but it was just kind of funny. To give you an example of Dusty's kind of sense of humor, we were in Cincinnati, and Dream and I were traveling together. And Dusty always liked to stay off the beaten path away from everybody else. And we pull up to a hotel, a brand new Hilton Hotel at the Cincinnati airport. We pull up, Sapphire and Sherry pull up right behind us. Now, we had no idea where we were staying that night. We were going to go in and see if they had rooms. And they pull up and go, oh, hey, are you guys staying here? And Dusty says, yeah, baby, we're staying here, but they sold out for the night. Y'all need to go there. The nice little Fairfield Inn over there, or Hampton Inn down the street. Real nice for y'all. I, I, I called in. They got reservations for y'all over there when I thought they didn't have no more rooms over here. And would send the girls on the way so that nobody would stay with us. We go in, all right, and Dream is telling me, Pongenhead, Pongenhead, let me handle this because I stay here all the time. They know me here. I get us a good rate. We walk in, and now this place is brand spanking new. He stays here all the time. He stays there all the time. I get a good rate. Let me handle everything. And we walk in, and the girl says, oh, hey, welcome. We're so happy to have you. This is our first weekend open. And (laughs) I'm looking at Dream like, (laughs) stay here all the time, right? I mean, they just built this place. It just opened it a week ago. So we go, we go in, and, and Dream and I had made plans to go to a movie that afternoon before the show. So we, we go in, and we go to our separate rooms, and I throw my bags in my room, and I go to Dusty's room, and I knock on the door and walk in, and he's there. No sans pants. pants. No pants. <laughs> <laughs> he just has his T-shirt on, sitting on the bed, and he turns the TV on. And on the TV, it says... The Cincinnati Airport Hilton welcomes Dusty Rhodes on the on the TV screen. And he looks, you know, I'm looking at that and and I'm like, what the hell? He goes, Oh man, he goes, they do that all the time. He goes, I tell them, always tell them, don't they don't need to do that to let everybody know I'm here and all that. You know, I I don't like it when they do that. So I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, so I don't even think about it. I'm just thinking it's odd that you turn on the TV and sure. Hilton is welcoming Dusty Rhodes. Now, you got to go back in time to 1989 when technology wasn't as sophisticated sure. as it is now. That's a big deal back then. Yeah. So we decide, he decides that uh, we're, he's too tired to go to a movie and he's just going to hang out in the room. So I go back to my room, turn the TV on, and the Cincinnati Airport Hilton welcomes Bruce Pritchard. <laughs> so now I get it. Okay. You know, you check in your room, they program your name, they welcome you on the screen. So I call him, go, hey, you asshole. I said, that's something they do for everybody. Goes, no, Pungin Head, what it was is I saw your face when you looked at the TV and thought they had only recognized me. And I called down to the front desk because, hey, can y'all put Bruce Pritchard's name up there on the TV so he don't feel bad? <laughs> I love him. That's the kind of sense of humor he had. <laughs> and that's, you know, the, the the way that he was. And you could call BS on all of it, and he would he would look you around right the face and go, no, nah, Pong and Hand, I did that for you, baby. Something fun about these early episodes is you can hear where these things that are part of canon now get started. And in episode two, featuring the Mega Powers, 
we start talking about the box of gimmicks and not a rib and something that I enjoyed, the, finally, the explanation as to what was the Red Rooster all about. Uh, famous story that Terry Taylor has put out there. Uh, apparently, when Vince was passing out gimmicks, it was Red Rooster and Mr. Perfect, and he just uh, drew the short straw and got the Red Rooster. Yeah, but let it, me tell you what happened on that day. Okay. We we have the, the box of gimmicks that we, <laughs> that we like to call it, and it's it's a box, and it's got paper in it with all these different gimmicks. And so whenever a new guy would come in, we would put a blindfold on somebody, and they would reach into the box of gimmicks, and they would pull out a gimmick, and whoever the next appointment was was with, we would say, okay, you're going to be the Red Rooster. You're going to be Mr. Perfect. Hey, you guys are going to be bushwhackers. That's how it happened. Uh, So Terry Taylor, of course, whatever comes out of his mouth is the absolute God's honest truth. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, Conrad, I'm going to tell you something about Mr. Perfect and how that gimmick came about. As I've said about all I need to say about the cockadoodle-doo guy. Um, Before you tell the story, was the Red Rooster a rib? No, absolutely not. It wasn't a rib. You know, just like Dusty Rhodes, and you talk about that being a rib, and people, people that have never spent a single day running a company or ever have a company themselves, you know, I I want those of you critics out there that still think that Dusty Rhodes was a rib and think that the Red Rooster was a rib, and I don't know, Virgil was a rib. Think about if you had your own company. How many business decisions would you make as a business owner for your business as a joke? Just to bust on somebody. How much money would you invest in television time and character development and everything else under the sun as a joke? Does that make any sense to anybody? You're a business owner. Yes. Would you bring someone in and just as a joke spend millions of dollars on them just so you can sit back and laugh at them while they fiddle fart around with your money and, and your investment. Okay. I didn't mention this last week. So with that in mind, since Vince would never do that because it's crazy, I want you to defend Akeem, the African dream, not the American dream and the way one man gang was made to dance very similar to the way maybe somebody used to shuck and jive in the ring before they dropped a bionic elbow on somebody. Steal from the best. But instead of the American dream, he's the African dream, but right. he's a white man who dances right. like, hey, that wasn't a rib either. That was not a rib, no. Jesus. I just Again, it's not a rib. It's a business How bad do you hate to go ahead for you to say, no, not a rib, no, not a rib, no, not a rib. <laughs> No, let's get back to the original question. And I was with the one-man gang here recently and had a great time reminiscing with them because we had a whole lot of time to reminisce, and it was a lot of fun. But, um, yes, about... uh, Mr. Perfect. Mr. Perfect. Yes, sir. And Mr. Perfect was a gimmick that Pat Patterson, in, in describing Kurt Hennig and how... Kurt was so good at everything that he did 
And it was kind of Kurt Hennig who wanted to be the all-around uh, sportsman and the best at everything. He was the best hunter. He was the best fisherman. He could do this. He could do that. And as Pat is explaining all this, and he goes, and he hits the golf ball, and he goes right in the hole, and he hits the baseball, and boom, out of the park, and he, he kills the biggest deer, and he gets the biggest fish, and oh my God. And it was like, well, he's perfect. Everything he does is perfect. So the truth is, is that when we reached into the gimmick box, we pulled out Mr. Perfect for <laughs> Kurt Hennig, and then the next one was... <laughs> You know, cock-a-doodle-doo man. No. And cock-a-doodle-doo man got his gimmick from Vince McMahon thinking he was cocky and looked at him as a, the cock of the walk, how he saw himself, he being Terry Taylor, whose goal in life was to imitate Ric Flair, and saw him as a rooster, as a banny rooster. And said, God, he's the red rooster. And gave this gimmick asked him to work it a certain way. Terry, in his way, looked at it as a rib, did not embrace it, did not do it to the best of his ability, and it failed. But to this day, more people will still refer to Paul W. Taylor as the Red Rooster before they will call him Terry Taylor or before they will call him whatever other ridiculous gimmicks that they did with him down south when he was, what what was he, the, the $300 man or something down there? Wow. Like that wasn't a rib and that wasn't a ripoff on another gimmick that was done by someone else? Was the, uh, the walk that you guys had him do a nod to Ric Flair? No, that was the rock walk he did. The walk, the walk that we wanted him to do was basically to strut like a rooster. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about. Um, so you're saying Ric Flair walks like a rooster? Okay. That's what you said. You compared him to the honky tonk man, and I can't wait to tell him he's going to. Uh, you're going to get a 3 a.m. promo very soon. <laughs> Now, we all know Bruce has a certain perspective and sees things a certain way. In episode three from Lex Express, Conrad calls him out a little bit and says that he's in spin cycle, talking about Lex Luger's workaround for being able to work in WWE, but still having a contract with WCW. And they talk a little bit about Kurt Hennig and some of his famous ribs. And how did Hogan get that black eye? And Lex was under contract to WCW. And his contract prevented him from wrestling for any competing wrestling company, specifically the WWF at the time. So when Lex came in, Lex came in under contract to the WBF. And he came in as an announcer, not a competitor, not a talent per se, as a co-host for the WBF Body Stars. And in that time... Uh, Lex obviously was going to work his time on Body Stars before he began his WWF career as a wrestler as Lex Luger. And on his way there, he had a motorcycle accident. And Lex had reconstructive surgery in his forearm, and it kind of delayed plans for Lex to make his wrestling debut. But so when, that, that really was a workaround, am I right? The WBF thing, that was a workaround for his Crockett contract where – he wasn't allowed to perform for another wrestling company or something? 
A workaround sounds so shady. It was simply obeying the laws of the you're, contract and that he was not ear. able to wrestle for a competing wrestling organization, but there was nothing in the contract that prevented him from competing as a bodybuilder or being a co-host on a television show. You make it sound so devious. I wish you could see the evil, evil smile on Bruce Pritchard's face right now as he tells that story that even he himself doesn't believe. He is, uh, his, his spin cycle is out of control. It's not a matter of belief. It's the truth. It's what actually took place and what actually happened. And, and why Lex, don't you just say it was a workaround? Just say it was a workaround. It wasn't, or it was yes, simply it obeying the contract and okay. obeying the law. All right. So really the goal in trying to sign the guy is to just stick it to Crockett, take one of the top guys they've pushed really hard for a long time, get him on your TV and use a workaround to do it. He screws all that up and hurts his arm. Now what? Listen to what you said. We're going to screw Crockett by taking Lex Luger. Why else, really? would you, why else would you sign him to go pose for a failing bodybuilding competition? Come on. You don't work there anymore. Tell the truth. What's wrong with I you? Think, I think J.J. Dillon said it best when he said that Lex Luger is the finest example of potential. That was never actually realized. And, you know, yeah, Lex was a talent. Lex was a big name at WCW. And the opportunity came for Lex to come over. So he came over. And there were big plans for Lex. Lex had the body type. Lex had the look that obviously was big at that time. Um, The only thing Lex really lacked was personality. Did he come in with a bigger contract than most of the boys in the WWF locker room at the time? Well, when Lex came, when Lex came in as the WBF commentator, Lex did have a contract that had a dollar amount attached to it. When Lex switched over to a wrestling contract, he was on a contract like everybody else that didn't necessarily have a guarantee other than opportunity. So you're saying there was no heat from the locker room when he came over on that WBF? There was perceived heat. Yeah, yeah, there was heat. There was big-time heat because everyone perceived that for Lex to come over, he had to come over for guaranteed money. He had to come over for a big guarantee. Well, he did for the WBF. He came over for the WBF. Yeah, all those guys, all the WBF guys had heat because they were being paid pretty uh, good, big money. They were being paid big money in comparison to the guys – that were working every night in the ring on the road, busting their humps and not making a lot of money at the time. So, you know, take a stab. What do you think his WBF number was? God, I have no idea. More than 250? No. So he would have been taking a pay cut. He was making more than that at Crockett. Well, it depends on how you look at it, because at the, at the end of that rainbow was a WWF deal where the potential was unlimited. And where he had an opportunity to make a lot more money if he got over. So was there any question when he got hurt as to the legitimacy of the injury or no? Oh, God, no, no. He, he had reconstructive surgery on his forearm. I mean, he had plates and uh, a lot of screws and he messed himself up. So now that he's back, uh, he's, he's in good health now. Uh, he's <laughs> had the arm fixed. Well, he's back anyway. Um, okay. You know, the, the idea was to bring Lex in as a heel. Uh-huh. The and narcissist. If, if you spend more than five, ten minutes around Lex, you 
got a very narcissistic vibe from him. Back then, not anymore. Present day Lex Luger is an amazing man. I'm sure he is. Yeah, I'm sure he is. Super great guy. Can't say enough nice things about him. We're talking about Lex 25 years ago. Yes, Lex 25 years ago was a different human being. Yeah. And he had a very narcissistic vibe, which helped with the name The Narcissist. Sure. And came in as a heel and uh, purple and silver trunks, and they had tassels on him and everything. And his first program was with Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig. And Lex is the kind of guy that stares at himself in the mirror in real life for, you know, 20, 30 minutes and every little imperfection he has to correct and so on and so forth. And Kurt Hennig was the kind of guy that would take those idiosyncrasies and exploit them. And he would, Kurt would mess with you big time. And so every night that they worked, Kurt would just pull off one tassel <laughs> off of Lex's trunks. One piece of one tassel. One tassel. He would just reach and he would grab one tassel. And you just said, got it. And Lex would come back and look at his ass and look around. And where do you get that tassel from? Where do you, uh, you know, you're messing up my trunks. You're messing up my gear. He had tassels all over the place. Nobody could tell. But Kurt made it a point to get one tassel every match, every night, and it drove Luger crazy. That's amazing. Kurt, Kurt would say things, you know, like, oh, you, you didn't work out today? Oh, bummer, man. And Lex, what, what do you mean I didn't work out today? And look at himself in the mirror and go, no, man, I, I, work, I worked arms. And, uh, you know, I'll just pose in the mirror and go, why, why doesn't he think I worked out today? Kurt had a way of really messing with people, and he – he exploited a big time with Lex and, and the narcissist came in and I would have to say that the reaction was maybe lukewarm. Are you, are you saying from the fans or the boys? Yes. Well, God, from everybody. But, uh, again, <laughs> I, I say this a lot, you know, this should be my hashtag. Then that damn bell has to ring and Lex, you know, wasn't the greatest, in ring performer. Ding dings. And uh, so, yeah, Lex came in in the narcissist deal and the whole heel persona. I don't know that it necessarily was getting over. And at the same time, we had this giant Yokozuna. So, let me ask you before you switch gears there. Mm-hmm. I've always been curious about this. A lot of people can't spell the narcissist, especially wrestling fans. I am a wrestling fan, so I'm allowed to say that because I'm disparaging myself. Whose idea was the narcissist? Do you remember sitting around a table and somebody says, damn, pal, let's call him the narcissist. What was the, what's the thought? You there? were there. Okay. Is that really what it was? <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a flashback, baby. All of a sudden <laughs> I'll transport it back in time. Yeah. I mean, pretty much, you know, that's, that's how it would go sometimes, but uh, I'm pretty sure that was a, uh, event deal. It was an idea from the top. And so when Vince says that, do you guys pile on with, let's put fringe on him and let's do the mirrors or did he come with, he already have all that when he pitched it. The mirror, no, the mirrors was something that we kind of came up with. Cause you, again, you hang around with Lex for more than 10 minutes. He's sure. going to find a mirror. He's going to find a reflection somewhere. And he looked like a Greek God. Right. So, I mean, he, he had something to look at, I guess, but, um, 
And this is around WrestleMania 9 when he's coming in because that's where he worked perfect um, at WrestleMania 9. So uh, time passes, and now there's the thought of, hey, this narcissistic thing is kind of uh, lukewarm at best, I think is the way you said it. So there's a decision made to kind of switch gears. How does that decision come about where you guys decide to flip him? Well, Hulk had come back. And Hulk came back for a very short time. He came back at WrestleMania nine and then Hulk did a European tour and Hulk wasn't sticking around at that point. Hulk was, Hulk was gone. He was going to take an extended leave of absence. You you brought it up. I got to ask what WrestleMania nine, that's the first wrestling pay-per-view WrestleMania pay-per-view. I didn't get in a while as a kid. My friend gets the pay-per-view. We talk afterwards. So, Hey man. Uh, Bret Hart, Yokozuna, who's the champ? Hulk Hogan. Wait, what? How did that work? <laughs> to carry us back behind the scenes. Hogan shows up that day with a black eye. Hogan somehow leaves with the belt in a match that featured Bret Hart and Yokozuna. What really happened? Well, what really happened was, I mean, it was the idea all along. The idea was to get the title on Hogan so that Hulk could go on the European tour as the champion and work with Yokozuna every night. And I believe Hulk and Vince really felt strongly that Hulk needed to be the champion for that European tour. And you said Hulk and Vince. Yes. Brad at times has given all that heat to Hulk. You're saying that was a Vince call too, and maybe he just pushed some of the heat onto Hogan. Everything that, everything that is decided there, guys, I mean, everybody is decided. I mean, it's ultimately Vince is going to say yes or no. Do you feel like Hogan would have lobbied for that? Or is that something Vince would have approached? I guess that's the way, what I'm trying to get to the heart of is, you know, when that match is announced, does Hogan see it on TV and say, oh, yeah, I need to get the belt here? You know, uh, going back, I know that the idea when it was pitched to us was pitched by Vince. Okay. So I. I don't know that Hulk didn't necessarily have a conversation with Vince prior to that saying, Hey brother, this is what I need to do. That idea was pitched to us from Vince. What about what if we did this to help the European tour with Hulk Hulk as champion? What was Brett's uh, feelings at the show? Do you recall? Yeah, Brett was hurt. I mean, Brett had this run with the championship. He knew he was dropping the title to Yoko. So that was the original plan was to drop it to Yoko. Yes. So th- that would have been at the time, the first time a heel left with the belt. Am I right? At Correct. WrestleMania? Yes. Um, yes. but somehow he finds out the day of about Hogan or would he have found up the weekend of, or a week before, or do you have any idea? I want to say he found out that weekend to be exact. I, I don't really remember, but he, he didn't obviously know. I believe he knew before that day. And he was visible. He, was, he wasn't happy about it. He, yeah. You know, he, <laughs> he had worked his butt off to become champion. And then all of a sudden it, it's, he doesn't just lose the title to Yoko, but then somebody else steps in in the hero role and walks out with the title in it. And everything that Brett had done was just kind of tossed aside. I think in Brett's eyes, would you have classified, how would you classify business with Brett as champion up, down, not different at, at that point? Yes. Neither, I'd I'd say it was flat. Okay, that's what business overall was flat at that point in time. I didn't want to put words in your mouth. 
but I wanted you to, you know, kind of carry us through there. So the thing about Hogan at WrestleMania nine that sticks out besides the main event is the black eye. That has to be the talk of the locker room. True or false? Not really. I mean, it's just, he showed up, he and uh, beefcake had been out on jet skis or wave runners or whatever, and got hit in the eye with a, a jet ski that's, and got rushed to the hospital. That's legit. That's legit. Yeah. So none of the rumors and innuendo about what are the rumors? Now, see, now you're telling me something new. What are the rumors? Well, there's talk online. Oh, well then it's probably, that's probably true then. Yeah. So there's, t- I love you. So there's talk online that, uh, that's when macho man confronted him about Elizabeth going and staying with Hogan and his wife for a while and not telling macho. And I don't know when that, when that occurred, but macho man but did not put the black eye on him. Macho didn't put the black eye on him. No. Okay. All right, cool. No. All right. Well, that's a boring story. So let's switch. Sorry. Back. Okay. So we're through, uh, Hogan is the back truth now. is usually a lot more boring. Yeah. I'm learning that with this story in particular. I just went on a tangent that fucking <laughs> you're the nowhere. one that went off and I was talking about Lex. I was getting to the exciting Lex express. Well, we couldn't just skip over WrestleMania nine because it was just a crazy end to a WrestleMania that we hadn't seen at that point. Uh, okay. So now Hogan's back. He's the champ. He's doing the European tour with Yoko. Uh, Luger is, is leaving being the narcissist and well, Hulk's leaving. So we have a, a new champion in Yokozuna. I believe we crowned him at King, King of, of the, the Ring, Ring in June. Yeah. And we needed a baby face. We needed a new fresh baby face. And Lex was, you know, Lex was the anointed one. Lex was the guy that was going to take us to the mountaintop. And we came up with this idea. You got a 500-pound Yokozuna sumo wrestler who, at that point in time, really hadn't left his feet. Right. It's new. Like, you know, he won the Rumble. He was, you know, we protected Yoko pretty well. So we came up with the Body Slam Challenge on the 4th of July on the Intrepid in New York City. And the idea was was that we would bring in people from all different uh, sports, football, what have you, to come in and try bodybuilders and all these people to come in and try to body slam the 500-pound Yokozuna. And Yoko was celebrating his victory of the WWF championship on America's celebration of independence on 4th of July on the United States battleship, the USS Intrepid. And nobody could slam Yoko. And by God, after Yoko declared victory in the skies up above, a helicopter, military military helicopter comes flying in, lands on the deck of the Intrepid, and in red, white, and blue, stepping from that helicopter comes America's only hope. By God, it's Lex Luger. Luger makes his way to the ring and body slams the evil Japanese tyranny known as Yokozuna. And all is right again in the world. Uh, Guys, remember the days when you were always ready to go? 
I do. Now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up. This episode is sponsored by blue chew. That's bluechew.com. You know, blue, like the color blue. You see blue chew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA approved active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis. You can take them anytime day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill. So you can be ready whenever an opportunity arises. If you could benefit from more confidence where it counts, blue chew is the fast and easy way to enhance your performance. By the way, blue chew is prescribed online by licensed physicians. So you don't have to go to the doctor's office or wait in line at the pharmacy and it ships right to your door in a discreet package. They're made in the USA and since blue chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. And best of all, there's no more awkwardness. And right now I've got a special deal for our listeners. Go to bluechew.com and get your first shipment for free. When you use our promo code wrestle, just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B O U E C H E W.com. The promo code is wrestle. And you get to try it for free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast and Bruce's Pants. Uh, you got to love that. And that promo code again is Russell, W-R-E-S-T-L-E, not wrestling, Russell. Yeah. So not, not the old, uh, the old song. You want to, you want to give us a rendition of that? R-E-S-S-L-I-N. That's wrestling, but use promo code Russell. From episode four, The Ultimate Warrior, we hear the behind the scenes story of the Rick Rude Ultimate Warrior pose down and what Bruce really thought. Plus, sometimes people need to be taught a lesson. And we hear about Warrior being taught a lesson by one Andre the Giant. And finally, we hear Bruce Pritchard defending and talking about the famous DVD, The Self Destruction of the Ultimate Warrior. Let's go back to the first Royal Rumble that was on pay-per-view it was in the summit in houston texas and there was a pose down that you referred to with rick rude and the ultimate warrior and the pose down would culminate at the end with rick rude spraying ultimate warrior in the face with tanning oil with with the baby oil right and warrior is so hyped up and so into it and has his eyes closed and is posing and rude is spraying him in the oil which Warrior's supposed to react to. But it takes forever. Rude finally just nails him because Warrior just doesn't react to it. He's so hyped up and so into the moment that he's, you he know, forgets he forgets to sell. Yeah, yeah, he forgets what what the deal is. But but then moving forward, they, they do their thing at WrestleMania. We moved on to Andre. And the idea at that time was Andre the Giant being one of the biggest figuratively and literally stars in the entire world it was you know let's give warrior a rub and get him into a program with andre and andre was willing to put him over every night and make the guy so in hindsight being 2020 it wasn't the best idea the way that uh, it went about it (laughs) because the matches lasted about 30 seconds it was kind of reminiscent of the honky-tonk man where andre would be in the ring warrior would come out with his entrance ropes give andre a big tackle and a big splash one two three and go around the ring with his music and be gone if you blinked you missed it now was that uh i guess two-part question here 
Is that based on Warrior's limited entering ability, or is it also taken into effect or into account the limited mobility of Andre the Giant at the time? It, not necessarily Andre's limited mobility at the time. The the idea, frankly, was neither. It was, what if, you know, this guy comes in, you're facing the largest athlete in the world and Andre the Giant, you beat him in 30 seconds. It was a way to shock people, and the idea was to really get Warrior over. Right. What happened was, is we really pissed audiences off. Because we put it on in the middle of the of the cards so that we could come back later on before the last match of the night and announce, and next time, right here, it will be the return as Andre the Giant will face the Ultimate Warrior, you know. And that was the idea behind it. It was a way to get Warrior over. Um, Andre didn't have to do a whole lot. And you get the return. It was kind of a freebie, per se. But it, in my opinion, it shit the bed. Did uh, Andre enjoy working with Warrior, or did he hate it? Too? <laughs> it that the thirty second matches, Andre He's, loved. Okay, so that begs itself to the follow up question: the longer matches, because they probably didn't have exclusively thirty second matches. He wasn't a fan of. No, Andre just didn't um you know warrior was going 20 miles an hour or 55 million miles an hour not 20 and andre had a much slower pace believe right. it or not but as big as andre was as strong as andre was as mean as andre could be if he liked you and he wanted to work he could work with just about anybody and andre would try to get warrior to slow down he would try to get him to relax in the ring and when warrior would keep going a mile a minute and keep hitting andre with everything he had andre had a way of dealing with it and there's actually video footage of it if you go back and you look at some of those return matches and i want to say it's it's on the destruction of the ultimate warrior tape i i I don't know because i never watched it but Andre warrior hits the ropes and he's coming off a mile a minute and Andre just sticks his fist straight out and punches warrior right smack in the middle of the face and the nose. Bobby Heenan tells a story. He's at ringside and he does this and warriors legs just go rubbery, but to warriors credit, he never went down. And Bobby said, he goes, Oh, you could see the, you know, the, the, the face paint crack on the ultimate warrior. Right. But, uh, you know, and then from there, warrior would hit and, and you can see there's video that exists. And I wish I could tell you exactly where the hell it is to see it, but you, warriors jumping over Andre and Andre's reaching up and punching him in the nuts and kicking him. And he could be an angry giant sometimes to work with. But after that, Warrior learned to slow down and to take it a little bit easier with the boss in the ring. Well, let's talk about that. Um, when we're talking about taking it easy, it seems like this was probably easy booking to put a guy who has this much fanfare behind him. Uh, obviously, a fan favorite, very popular. Uh, I'm sure you guys were measuring you know, all of your merchandise metrics and stuff like that to see that, hey, this is the guy. 
do you remember the conversation uh, that you had with Vince where there's some sort of discussion about the first time that you recall? I mean, hey, we're going to have Warrior, you know, beat Hogan. I don't really recall it. You know, it's probably discussions that we all had over over a period of time as to, you know, you got this guy coming up in, in warrior and his popularity was, was great. But, um, you know, I don't remember any one specific, but the, and, and there were mixed feelings really with the, the title change from Hogan to warrior, because there were guys, experienced guys, um, you know, Ted DiBiase, you know, Savage, a lot of the agents that felt that Warrior wasn't right mentally to be the champion at the time. No, no, I want you to expand on that. What do you mean? Attitude. Maybe mentally is not the right, but attitude-wise. He was rough around the edges. He didn't have a love for the business, which old-timers... And I'm going to include myself in that. You know, we we would always feel, by God, you know, you got to love the business. You got to appreciate it. You got to pay your dues. You got to do this. You got to do that. And Warrior hadn't done a lot of that. Right. And he skyrocketed to the top on physique, charisma, and intensity. And Warrior had all that. He had an incredible physique. He had incredible intensity. And he had just naturally oozed with charisma. (laughs) So he had those tools. He had a shitty attitude. But a lot of guys have shitty attitudes. So that... What may, what, give me an example of him having a shitty attitude. Um, I don't know. Just it, In regards to, uh, you know, he thought he was better than people. He thought that the wrestling was He gave was that stupid. impression. Okay. He, he so he just rubbed people the wrong way. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So a shitty attitude was based on him not growing up as a wrestling fan and him thinking, this is a business, I'm not a mark, I'm better than this. Yes, that, okay. was, that was the feeling okay. that, that people got from him. And that was the perception Amongst of the boys. And, of course, perception becomes reality. Right. So, you know, we, we got there, and Hulk was, I believe, going away to do a movie. That's what I wanted to talk about. My question, I guess, what I was trying to drive at is, did you really have a situation where we have to make this guy go over Hogan like it's it's time for someone to be Hogan and we want it to be this guy or is the situation really hey man Hogan's leaving and we got to have somebody in that spot so it's not that Hogan's run is done necessarily he's just going to do other stuff we need to stand in to kind of keep the train on the tracks it's a little bit of both and I think that it was also in a lot of respects from Vince's point of view that he was looking for the next Hogan Hulk was getting older and the idea of, you know, maybe his Hulkamania run its course. That wasn't as much of an issue, but it was, we need something new. We need something else. So here you got this, this younger, younger guy that is coming on. He's popular. He's, he's getting over and maybe it's time and combine that with Hulk, you know, had some other stuff, other opportunities outside of the business, give that character a rest a little bit and move on. So you guys decided, take a stab at when you decided. I don't know. They touched at Royal Rumble 
and kind of looked at each other and then looked around at the crowd and the crowd goes nuts. So you at least knew by January. Oh yeah. We knew it's survivor series. Most uh, likely. Okay. And he was su- yeah. sole survivor that year, I think, uh, for his team. Yeah. And, um, so obviously, you know, you're trying to, you know, he's beat all these men by himself. You're trying to really shine him up. A couple months later, the Royal rumble, they touch, they look at each other. Uh, the electricity's in the air. So, uh, any hesitation from Hogan about dropping the belt? Not that I ever knew. No, uh, Hulk was from, from my side and what I know and what I was involved with at that time, there was never any hesitation from Hulk at all. It was, it was all, let's go get this guy over. I'm going to do everything I can and let him run with the ball for a little while. See how he does. Well, I think in the back of Hulk's mind, it was probably like, okay, get in the ball. Let's see what he does. And I think that ego on his side probably is that he could do better. So well, you're supposed to feel that chance. way in the rest of, of the business. Yeah. yeah. So um, on the DVD that you say you didn't watch that we we have to address at some point, uh, the self-destruction of the Ultimate Warrior that WWE put out and there were lawsuits and blah, blah, blah. Hogan said something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing because it has been a while since I've seen it. He knew that this was not the guy to drop the belt to. And you're saying you don't believe that that was the case or he didn't express that to you then. Do you think that's Hulk just trying to make that narrative work for the DVD? Or or do you think... I don't know that there was necessarily... you got to understand that you say the narrative for the DVD. The DVD kind of came out of a trying to do a dvd on warrior wanted warrior's involvement in it and wanted him to participate and be a part of it and he didn't do it as interviews and as feedback was coming in and and they were doing all of these interviews with people they're looking at it going wow um there's not a lot of positive stuff to work off of. Well, hang on now. And, are, are but you... it was now, I, I'm, no, I'm, I know what you're going to say. And it's, it was never, hey, let's go out and bury the ultimate warrior. It was, let's go do this video. But you know what? Is there getting all of these bites and interviewing people? There was so much negativity, if you will, that it became, it, it became that. And it went in that direction. And so there was eventually coaching on what to say. No. Or, or not necessarily what to say, but, I mean, here's the thing. If I don't know. Look, I, I can tell you. You from, produced some of those segments. No, I didn't. Did you not? No, I didn't. Okay. I was interviewed for it, and no one and, coached me on what to say. I was asked. Uh, we were interviewed. But but you've never done an interview before where you sit down and you just shit on someone. Sure, it, I had. For it DVD. may not have aired. Yeah, without a doubt. They shoot that stuff for hours sometimes, asking guys questions, and they pick and choose what they want to air. In my head, if I was if I was told we're doing a disc on the Ultimate Warrior, I would tend to think we're trying to put him over. They were trying to put him over. Golly, it's difficult talking. No, the, but you got to understand the original concept was yeah. to do a disc on Ultimate Warrior right. and and then have him participate in it. Yeah. But then when you sit down and you get twenty different people and they're asked questions 
and you listen to it, and 90% of it is, oh, you know, really he was a jerk, and really he was this, really he was that, and, well, I never thought that would work. There, There becomes a tone to it, and when the producers and everybody looks at it and they go, hey, this is what we've gotten here, at some point along the line, and I didn't have any input one way or the other on that, so I can't tell you that, by God, let's go bury the Ultimate Warrior at that point. It was just feedback from producers and people that were putting the DVD together that came back and said, hey, this is this is what we got. We don't have a whole lot here to to go, woohoo, Ultimate Warrior, you know? What a great guy. And so it became, well, maybe that was... A, so the destruction be- of his, and, and, and be- let's go another route. And it became a hit job, and you know, Photoshop posters and all kinds of other stuff to make him look embarrassing. What Photoshop posters? I'll be? show you later. Anyway, let's move on. We're talking about when you trying to be positive for a minute, which is I know difficult for you in your old age. I tried to pull some fun clips from every episode. Not a lot of fun clips from Montreal, although it is one of the most informative and dare I say controversial episodes of something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. And they kind of go on a little sidebar here while Conrad asks about if they ever accidentally on purpose let any bad words slip on TV for the purpose of perpetuating some kind of narrative. And during the infamous Brett and Austin I Quit match, were they authorized to get color? You find out here. Go ahead. I'm not mad at all. So um, the decision is made to um, do an old switcheroo. Brett wins the final four, but then drops it to Sid on Raw. Uh, loses it to Sid. Uh, we start to see a little more edge for the very first time from Brett. Was there any conversation about how difficult it would be to start the heel turn of Brett Hart? What do you mean? Well, Brett had been a babyface for such a long time at that point, and now he's gonna, you know, claim he was screwed by, uh, you know, to drop the belt to Sid on Raw. Uh, and then he's going to have a cage match, and then he's going to say he was screwed there. He's going to cuss on live TV. We're almost to WrestleMania 13 now. You guys are going to do a double turn. I'm wondering if he had any reservations about being this hero and this baby face and this face of the company, the face that runs the place, so to speak, and now he's going to be a heel. No, not at all. Not that I remember. And and frankly, the hotter the baby face, the hotter the heel. Sure. So the fact that he was all the things that you just described made it easier to make him a heel. When you guys would have someone cuss on the microphone on television, would you give USA a heads up on that? Or would you just say, well, we had, we had a delay in the truck, so we could, we could nip it in the truck. You didn't always. No. So sometimes we're human. We miss it on purpose. Conrad. You're okay. You're making a face right now. If you're really trying to get him over, you want one to slip through every now and again. Is that more of a ask forgiveness, not permission type situation? Depends on the situation. Okay. You're not going to give me an answer. Let's move along. So WrestleMania 13. It's is a here. rib, Conrad. It was just a rib. Oh, I see. I'm trying to not do that this week. <laughs> yeah, it's just, all just a rib. Um, WrestleMania. We looked in the box of gimmicks and we said, what should we do? Okay, okay. go ahead. WrestleMania 13, one of my very favorite matches of all time. That's a great time in wrestling. Uh, Steve Austin, Bret Hart, I quit match. Uh, Ken Shamrock is the referee. Um, whose idea was it to involve Shamrock? Did you know all along he was going to be a wrestler? Were you just trying to feel him out? And at this point, we're just going to 
uh, do a special appearance, like a one-off, or what's the plan with Shamrock? Oh, hell no. Shamrock was signed. Mm-hmm. Shamrock was in. He was just waiting to introduce him. Did you have the finish in mind, or you guys have the finish in mind for that Steve Austin, Bret Hart match before you announced it was a submission match, or did you just reach in the box of gimmicks and say submission match, even though Austin didn't have an I quit maneuver? Well, I think it was Howard Finkel's turn to pick in the box of gimmicks. Oh, gosh. So he reached in and came up with an I quit match, and that's, you know, it just happened. What's that's the, how it works. What's the real deal? No, it, it was um, simply a situation of you've got a great technician in Brett, great technician in Steve Austin. They'd seen the other matches, and it made sense. It, it was it just made sense. So the the finish was booked at what point? Probably that day. So uh, really, an awesome match. You know, he uh, he bleeds out, so to speak. He passes out. He doesn't uh, tap out. He doesn't quit. Uh, iconic thing that they never show on TV anymore because of the color. Uh, Brett does the honors for him. Is there any nervousness about, um, when I say do the honors, I mean, with zip, uh, he had a little help doing it. Uh, and, and Austin has admitted it's not something that he did often or he felt comfortable with or whatever. So Brett did it for him. Do you remember that being a conversation? Is that commonplace back then for one of the boys to take care of another in that regard? You're very weird about me asking this, aren't you? <laughs> Is this the one sacred thing you're not supposed to talk about? No, I, you know, it was, it was not approved. It was not part of the match. Guys went into business for themselves. So he was supposed and, to just pass out and they decided to add the element of color. Yep. Yeah, come on. Are you serious? You asked me a question. I answered your question. Wow. That's news to me. I didn't expect that. Probably my favorite episode of something to wrestle with from the early years is the Brawl for All episode because it contains so much stuff we'd never heard before. One thing I was always curious about, and one thing they talk about, is why didn't they capitalize on Bart Gunn's win? And what was the -the behind-the-scenes story about how they put that fiasco together with Butterbean? The goal, certainly, was to get the winner over as a huge star, not a huge star, but level him up, put some shine on him, give him some focus, give him some new legs. But I feel like Bradshaw comes out of this thing looking better than almost everybody else, even though he got knocked out in the finals, because he would be the guy who ultimately went on to be the WWF champion and that, or WWE champion that didn't happen. Well, that with, certainly wasn't because of the brawl for all. I guarantee you. Well, my point is, um, you guys unceremoniously buried Bart Gunn, and I can't wait to hear whose idea it was to put him in the ring with Butterbean the next year. So to recap, it's the end of August. I know you're making a weird face at me. It's the end of August. You wanted to get this guy over and make him somebody. So you immediately coming out of this on the end of August, start programming him against Bob Holly, who was now going by hardcore Holly and, um, <laughs> They're, you know, having a feud about pushing each other off the stage and lots of craziness. It doesn't really ever go anywhere or do much. But then somehow, several months later, well, hell, he's a badass. Let's let him fight Butterbean. Whose idea is this? I think it was a culmination of a lot of people. Um, A... The gentleman who trained Mark Merrill, Mark Merrill's trainer, um, Ray something, real nice guy from Buffalo, New York, who saw something in Bart. 
and felt that he could make a professional boxer out of Bart. Uh, Ray Ray Rinaldi is the name of Ray Rinaldi. Yes, yeah. Um, just a sweetheart of a guy, and the idea came up. Well, is there somebody out there that you know Bart could could box um, in a feature? Who's a name? You know, obviously you're not going to put him against Mike Tyson or anybody like that because, you know, that wouldn't last five seconds instead of however many seconds the the other one lasted. 35. But, yeah, I was going to say 37. But it was simply a case of, well, the shoot aspect worked for Bart. Well, let's keep that same thing going. And it didn't, you know. Uh, To me, it was a failed experiment. You know, you win some, you lose some. Um, I've had plenty of them. But it just was a bad idea, and the (laughs) bad idea just kept getting worse. And we looked for a name, and we had done work with Butterbean and Butterbean's manager, Art Donovan, before. So uh, Ray knew art we knew art and the phone calls were made asking uh butterbean if he would be interested in doing the brawl for all deal can you freestyle what uh his payday may have been for that who's butterbeans i haven't god i don't remember man so you said who's so that means you know bart guns what did bart gun get to fight butterbean Oh, I don't know that. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> dude, that was WrestleMania. I don't well, know. I don't funny. remember everybody's payoff. Well, I say who's payday. Uh, what was his payday? And you say who, and then you know well, neither you said guy. Who? Pronouns, pal. Goddamn, pal. Pronouns. Well, you knew neither one. So what did it matter which one I'm talking about? Well, okay. No, neither. I don't, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hey, folks. Can you tell that we really and truly don't rehearse this stuff? Well, it's and better. We free form just talking about this on the air. So. It's good. I like it. I never know what Conrad's going to throw at me. He never knows how the hell I'm going to answer. But it works somehow. That's why you get on Twitter and say, you forgot about on April 9th at 1247 p.m. So I said this. Okay, sorry. Well, yeah, we uh, we freestyled it, and we had a good time talking about the Brawl for All. Uh, One question that I guess. You want to talk about the Butterbean fight? Uh, Yeah, I would love to. I, I feel like. I feel like the Butterbean fight is really part of Brawl for All. I know it's not, but it's it's certainly it the cherry on top. Uh, yeah, it is. It was just another ill-conceived idea, but Bart trained hard for it. And he, he went up and trained with Ray Rinaldi and, and busted his ass really preparing for the fight. But Butterbean's a super heavyweight who gets doesn't get paid by the hour, gets paid to go out and knock guys out. And that's what Butterbean does. And I know that a lot of people would consider butter being a sideshow, but it didn't look he, like one that day. Uh, yeah, I've never seen him look like one in the ring. I mean, he's a tough son of a gun and Bean even came to us and said, Hey, you know, what do you want me to do? I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you're saying Bean was willing to work a little bit. Bean was willing to work. Well, I don't think I, I don't think Bean would have been willing to lose, <laughs> but Bean was willing to work. And well, what, okay, this begs the, the question. Was, this what's why, that? Why don't y'all just pay him? Pay who? Butterbean. Bean to lose? To yeah. Because the idiotic idea of well, let's make it real. It'll mean something. No, it 
doesn't in a make-believe world. You're right. You're right. Why not pay Bean to lose? I don't know that Bean would have agreed to lose. But but you could have gotten somebody to agree to sure, lose. Sure, exactly, to build Bart. Yeah, I just don't get that. I mean, I know. Well, there it's, there, what's there was your- so much... There was so much, well, you know, wow, I didn't see that in Bart Gunn. And, well, maybe he's the real deal. Maybe he, he can have a career in boxing. Maybe he could do this. Well, Butterbean and um, people thinking that Bean wasn't a, a legit boxer because all he did was tough man stuff. It, it's different. It's different when you box all the time and all you do is train to knock somebody's head off. It's different than when you do other things and you learn how to throw a few punches. I, I, I trained in karate and I was a decent point fighter when I was much, much, much younger and I hit hard. So the idea was, well, he hits hard, but I hit hard for a point fighter. So I said, well, try full contact. And I went and trained. And at the time, they were getting boxers involved. And the boxers, you only had to throw like 12 kicks, I think, per round. So the boxers would learn how to throw a roundhouse, throw their 12 kicks, and then just take your head off. Well, training with boxers for a few months, who all they do is punch your face in. I was like, forget this, man. (laughs) You know, this hurts. It's a completely different world when you're used to working. And you're think about the guys that he faced in the brawl for all. They weren't boxers, right? Tough guys. But if anybody was a boxer, Merrow was, but right. again, Merrow hadn't boxed in years. Right. And now you're facing a guy. That's all he does. It's Ill conceived idea. It's just interesting to me. This is a time where you guys are, you know, you have like the ministry of darkness and you're setting crosses on fire and you're kidnapping people and hitting them with set cars a cross on fire. Okay. Set a symbol on fire. Sorry. Um, but that that's okay. We got to make this real. And in the end, real didn't work out for the WWF real didn't work out for Bart Gunn or anybody who was involved. Uh, the only person who goes on to have considerable success with the WWE, um, is Mr. Bradshaw. Anything else you want to mention on this? I guess the one thing I really want to ask is, man, why didn't you guys just shit can this idea like a weekend? Oh God, I would have loved to shit can it. It was horrible. Y'all didn't it talk about horrible. that ever. Like, what? let's just can it like this. Oh man, I got my ass chewed out so bad that, you know, this may be a reoccurring theme on the show about me getting my ass chewed out. I got my ass chewed out so bad for being negative when presented the idea. I just kept my mouth shut from that point forward. Going, okay. I've stated my case. I've said it's a horrible idea. Um, I hate it. I'm on record. Everybody knows I hate it. Next. So in the end, um, did Vince ever come? In the end, JR and I had to deal with all the injuries, and and it costs a lot of money to the company having to pay for rehab and and getting these guys taken care of and, and time off from work. So yeah, it costs us a lot of money and JR and I are the ones that had to deal with the fallout. But what was Vince saying in the meantime, like in between the, in between, you know, week to week, you guys aren't doing all this in one night. It's a two month deal. Is Vince still, God damn pal, don't be negative. Or what's the deal in my head? He, he's got to be realistic with this. Yeah. He's, he's going to defend the idea. Vince is going to stay positive and defend the idea and try and convince everybody it's the right thing to do. So right now, if we're we had, in it. 
if we had, if we had, through to the end if we had Vince McMahon here even though Garnett said it was a bad idea Layfield said it was a bad idea Layfield didn't say it was a bad idea who said that well I just assumed that he probably felt it was a bad idea I I don't think he cared okay. I think that the talent that were in it, I don't know that that many of them thought it was a horrible idea before it happened. Guys that weren't in it thought it was a terrible idea. I'd venture to say Austin probably thought it was a terrible idea. You know, those guys probably thought it was a terrible idea. Well, so I'm asking, though, do you think if Vince was here right now, he would say it was a bad idea? Or do you think he would still defend it? I think he'd say it was a bad idea. I think everyone involved would say it was a bad idea. If you had it to do over again, would you book this same concept except work the whole thing? Nope. Terrible concept. Just wouldn't do it at all. Wouldn't do it at all. How's it any different? You know, one minute rounds, three one minute rounds, judges, blah, blah, blah. How's it any different if you work it than just working a wrestling match? Because it just wasn't, it wasn't good. Yeah, you you want to got- watch, watch boxing or MMA? Go watch boxing and MMA. Just so I'm clear, you were involved in booking uh, Mayweather Big Show at WrestleMania, right? Yeah, I was. And WWE did promote. It was a wrestling match. Booker T did promote, or not Booker T, uh, Mr. T did fight Roddy Piper at WrestleMania, right? Yes, that was a work. So why not do that? It wasn't a tournament, and it didn't eat up a ton of television time, and it was a huge television star in Mr. T. And these guys, uh, it's important to mention, there were chants during these contests, uh, boring and we want wrestling. Correct. And Vince still thought, got to see it through, pal. We were in it. Got to finish it. Anything you want to say to put a bow on the brawl for all as we kind of wrap things Worst up Worst idea in wrestling. I just thought it was terrible. Uh, been on my soapbox. And again, for everybody that's going to go, oh yeah, what about this? Yes. I had a lot of terrible ideas, but this had to be the, the worst of, of my just, it was bad. There were just so many bad ramifications. I'm glad it's over. And, uh, at least gives us something to talk about today. I, uh, I gotta be honest. I did an interview with Vince Russo, uh, last year for the Ric Flair show, or I guess it was called Wood nation at the time. And I had an opportunity to talk to Vince, uh, before, during, and after the show. And I found Vince to be, uh, not what everybody made him out to be. You were a lot easier on Vince Russo today than I expected. It seems like old time wrestling guys, people who've been around the business a long time, really brutalize him. But in this instance, you're just saying it was a bad idea. You're not so much heaping it all on uh, all on Vince Russo. You can't. Vince McMahon approved it. Well, I hate Steven Singer. You heard me. I hate Steven Singer. There's a guy in Philly you've probably been hearing about. Especially if you've been to Philly, you've probably seen the billboards or heard him on the radio. But I hate Steven Singer. What does that even mean? Steven Singer is the most hated jeweler in America. Why? Because other jewelers just can't stand him. Because he has the best Valentine's gift ever. And we're excited to tell you about it. Steven Singer and Something to Wrestle are bringing you the best Valentine's Day gift ever. Are you listening to this? Picture it. A real long stem American beauty rose lavishly and deeply dipped in pure 24 karat gold. It lasts forever. You heard right. And they start at just 59 bucks. His beautiful Valentine's bread rose won't wilt or die. It doesn't even need water. 
This is the number one gift that women want. Something unique, something special, something that lasts forever. They come with your own personalized love note, all in Steven's signature gift box, shipped for free, starting at just 59 bucks. Go now to IHateStevenSinger.com or the other corner of 8th and Walnut in Philly to see what I'm talking about. Real roses from a real jeweler for your real love. Steven Singer Jewelers, that's IHateStevenSinger.com. You got to see this thing for yourself. Uh, when you see it, you're going to think, man, they've mispriced this. This should have another zero behind it. But it starts at just 59 bucks right now at IHateStevenSinger.com. Episode 7 on the steroid trial is basically the Jerry Jarrett impression episode. And of course, the infamous story about the chicken salad is on that episode. So make sure to check out that episode and all the others in the archives. But there's also some great stories involving Jerry Jarrett in a car. But it's not just Jerry Jarrett impressions. What did they do the night after they got the verdict? Um, were you ever in a car with him and frustrated? Well, maybe, yeah, I sure have been. Maybe Pat was in the car or Vince was in the car. Oh, God. You know, see, I tell you things and you bring it up on the air. Well, we don't, we don't just, have to talk about it. The, the, I'll, I'll tell you. No, everybody's going now. What, what's the story? <laughs> the, the, story the story is, is that we were, we were in a car and we were on our way to uh, believe the garden. And this is back when cars had phones in them and we didn't have individual uh, cell phones and Vince wanted to know what the ratings were. And Jerry, since Vince was driving, Jerry was going to be the one to call and Jerry calls and calls Vince's assistant at the time, Sylvia and conversation from our end sounded kind of like, hello. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, it's Jerry. We're in the car, and, well, Vince, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, oh, really? Oh, wow. Well, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. Well, well we were wondering if, if we got the ratings in yet. Oh, okay, uh-huh, oh, okay, yeah, all right. Okay, oh, all right, all right. All right, well, bye bye. Hangs the phone up, and there's just silence. <laughs> and everybody's looking at each other, and Vince looks at Jerry and says, Well, and Jerry looks at Vince, Huh? The ratings, pal, damn it, the ratings. Oh, 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 they're not in yet. <laughs> It doesn't get so old. On, on, on another on another car ride, since you got me started on those, we're, we're driving along, and this time Pat's driving. I'm in the front seat, and Vince and Jerry are in the back seat. And th there were times when I would just entertain myself, and I started laughing, and Vince is in the back. What are you laughing at, pal? I said, nothing, nothing, I'm sorry. Just thought of something funny. Share it. No, no, it's okay, it's okay, man. I, I'm, I'm good. God damn it, what are you laughing at? I said, well, I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, Pat and I are sitting up here in the front seat and, you know, we're, we're driving to New York City and in the back seat are probably the two most hated motherfuckers this business has ever known, meaning Vince McMahon and Jerry Jarrett. Well, Vince 
just thought that was the funniest damn thing he'd ever heard. Ha, ha, ha! Ah, God damn you, Bruce. Ah, you son of a bitch. And Jerry was like, huh? Why, I, I don't know of anyone that doesn't like me. And I turned around and said, well, Jerry, just give me a roster sheet of anybody that's worked in Memphis over the last 25 years, and we can start there. He just had a very false, warped sense of himself. I love that impression. Uh, we, we may not ever talk about um, Jerry Jarrett again on the show. No, we won't. You're it, right. It, is there anything else you want to address? Any any sort of other personal grievances or dirty laundry you'd like to air? <laughs> no, you know it, it's 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 just you hear these things and people talk about it and it's accepted as fact. And. That wasn't the fact. It, it was simply Jerry was brought in as a consultant, pick Jerry's brain, and see if there was anything there. It didn't take long to pick, and we found out there wasn't a whole lot there. So, you know, Vince tried. We tried. I I really did try. I really and truly did because we needed help. And but it just takes. It's a. It's a unique unique di- dynamic that you had to fit into and Jerry didn't fit into it. Well, let's, uh, let's fit into the end of this steroid trial. Um, everything's done. The jury is going to go ahead and deliberate and people are feeling pretty confident that, um, this was going to be not guilty, but it takes a while longer than they imagine. And people start to get a little nervous. Do you remember, when that's going on, where you are or what you're doing? I sure do. We were in, we were in the tower. Um, we didn't leave. And I was coming off the elevator on the fourth floor and heard Pat screaming and came around the corner and Liz DeFabio and Pat Patterson were in the hallway and screaming, not guilty, not guilty. And, uh, Three of us cried there and um, walked in, and we got the phone call, and we took it in either mine or Pat's office, and Vince asked us to go and uh, go pick Stephanie up. Stephanie was, was on a train coming in from Boston. And he asked Pat and I to go pick her up at the train station and bring her to Long Island to celebrate the victory. And we uh, we went, we picked up the Mazzolas in Greenwich, and we um, went down to Long Island, and we had a celebration. Now I've got the I've got the picture uh, here in my office of the the, the verdict. <laughs> That night, it was a wild night. Let me tell you. Where did you go? One of the one of the one of the only times that I can remember being refused entry back into a uh, a bar establishment for being too inebriated. Wow. Um, what would Vince McMahon's drink of choice been that night? Doers on the rocks. What? Uh, 
where does someone go to celebrate in Long Island in 1994? <laughs> the Marriott. <laughs> really? Yeah, we we were at the Marriott because that that was the kind of the company hotel, the base station for the trial. I see. And so everybody was there, and no one needed to be driving anywhere uh, after the fact. But so we had, we had cars, but it was uh, it was a wild night. It was a it was a, it was a lot of weight off of our shoulders. I tell you, it felt good, and and it was. Um, all the key, you know, Shane and Steph were both there. Um, the whole team, and and it was it was a pretty cool night. So the verdict comes down just before four o'clock uh, when it's announced not guilty. Uh, O'Shea's jaw drops, and uh, the fans who were in the courtroom, which I can't believe they were in there, cheered loudly. The judge gets pissed off, orders everyone who was uh, cheering to leave the courtroom. Vince holds a press conference right after, and it's all behind them. Uh, do you remember when you when your pay cut happened and when you got it back? Because it's not like that night, as he's toasting you with doors, all of his bills went away for no, the lawsuit. No, it, it, it took a little while. It took a little while. Once business started to turn around, we you know he corrected all of that, and, and we got back to uh, to where we were and beyond. So it was all good. He made up for it after the fact. Uh, when those pay cuts come down, uh, would that have been around the same time that JJ Dillon takes a pay cut right after he bought a house and is jammed up and then he still cares? I just bought a house and I got mine. So he wasn't alone. I'd bought my first house and I'd been in it less than a month. Mm. Yeah. Uh, wasn't a fun time. I know. I know you're going to try to kayfabe it anyway. Give me a percentage. Half a cut? I mean, did you make? Did you get a half a cut? A <laughs> it hurt. Cut? Let, me, let me put it this way: it hurt. Okay, it hurt. I'm just gonna let it be awkwardly silent until you give me some more information. Okay, this is not making for a good show, so I'll start talking <laughs> in the interest. See, the person that speaks first loses. Yeah, I know there a thing or two about sales, but I'm not trying to sell you on anything at this point, except checking us out on twitter at pritchard show now last week on something to wrestle with we got the second chapter the completed story of the radicals but the first episode of the radicals was episode eight of something to wrestle with and conrad has often said it is the episode that put them on the map and is responsible for the popularity taking off of something to wrestle with bruce pritchard here, Conrad puts Bruce on the defensive about defeating Benoit right away. And also, we hear the story of Perry Saturn and Mike Bell. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you might want to listen. You have this initial conversation with them on Monday the 17th. Do you meet with them in Stanford that very same week? Is yes. this Okay. I so this, say we met with them on that Wednesday. Okay. Like All right. So you met him on like the 19th. Uh, and they don't actually debut though. And this is what I found interesting because when you look at when they show up, it's the end. So it's January 31st. So almost two weeks later before they make a debut, it seems like you guys would have tried to put them on the show before that. Was that contract back and forth during that time? No, I think it was simply, you know, we had TV laid out and it was just simply a matter of, do you realize how bullshit that sounds? 
You guys used to change well, I'm TV. I'm sorry, because y'all were all there when we wrote TV. Uh, no, I, I know I, we, cha- we did change TV on, on the fly, but we had things laid out and wanted them to have impact and wanted them to be able to come in as, as a surprise and let everybody, all, but, you know, I say surprise, but we also wanted the anticipation of them coming in. It was It was simply, let's plan for it. Uh, you can do a knee-jerk reaction and have them come out the very next night. But if if you're not 100% ready and you don't 100% have everything down, sometimes you end up kicking yourself in the ass when you don't need to. And we didn't need to. Had we been in second place at the time, maybe we would have. I find it interesting, though, that the top guys, and you want to give them a big impact, so you have them debut in the crowd because they're outsiders i get it you're trying to kind of do some of that and they interfere in a match with the new age outlaws al snow and steve blackman and then all put their finishers on and then they're offered a chance to win contracts by beating members of dx and x Pac beats dean malenko and um perry saturn and eddie guerrero lose to the new age outlaws and Chris Benoit loses to Triple H. Was this kind of foreshadowing for what we could expect with the WCW invasion? We get these guys over. They've been on other TV. Let's beat the shit out of them the first time they're on TV. Well, first of all, we didn't beat the shit out of them. Second, <laughs> second of all, Eddie Guerrero dislocated his elbow in that match, and that was an audible that was called. And it was also an idea of let them fight from underneath because, again, just you know as, as you even phrase the question it's like what would the typical wrestling thing be to do they bring, bring them in over. bring bring them in and have them go over your top guys well hang on then your then your top guys are shit bring them in let them work from underneath and do it a little differently um not do the same formula of what has been done and what we always seem to lazily fall back on guilty done it it was just a different way to do it. But Eddie, you know. Eddie, that sounds like a bullshit answer, Bruce. Okay, you think it's bullshit, but that's what it was. It's was a different way to do it. If you, you saw. You don't just, just because you, hang you, on. you come in and guys go over doesn't mean they're over. If Finn Balor's debut on Raw consisted of Seth Rollins beating him clean in the middle, you think that's a hell of a way to debut Finn Balor? It would depend. It would depend on what the buildup was, depend on what the story was. What if Finn if Balor guys, was sitting in the crowd? If these guys came in and they're overcome, and then they fight from underneath, it's it's another way to do it. And whether it's right or wrong, it, it's what we did. Right. So, and it worked. And you guys quickly. Yeah, but but did, it, did it not work? Did Benoit not get over? Did Eddie not get over? Did I mean, did it not work? No, it did work. Okay, then. Just because we strayed from what traditional wrestling would do, I love saying that, wrestling, um, it, it's different. It was just different. That's all. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't time, let's bring these guys in from WCW and squash them. You can't Why tell do me. you? No, hang on. Why do you invest in someone to just bring them in and destroy them? I'm asking. There's nothing, you don't gain anything from that. There was a story behind it. It was for these guys to fight from underneath. 
and the story overcome. And the story was, let's have Triple H beat their world champion in his first match, just like he did with Taz. No, that's what happened. Okay. The story was that the radicals come in, they come in on a high and have the fucking rug pulled out from under them. Okay. The predictable story would be, okay, the new guys come in, so they're going to go over and win contracts. A story is, hey, the new guys come in, they get thwarted, they get the rug pulled out from under them. What happens now? So... Based on, on the philosophy of what you're talking about is, okay, hey, well, let's just let's spend all this money and bring in four new talent and let's just squash them like bugs and, and move on just to show that we're better. You're going to tell me that there was no thought process whatsoever amongst Triple H or anyone else. And Triple H had a reputation at the time from the newsletters. You can correct it right now. Because they were all there in the in the meetings when all this stuff was discussed. He beat Taz in the middle. He oh, beat God. Chris Benoit in the middle. And those were the champs for WCW and ECW. Oh, my God. Just asking. He's been beaten in the middle, too. So, yeah, so we squashed him, too, because I, he got beat in the middle. You, you win in the middle, you lose in the middle. But for you know, the conspiracy theorists of, no, we brought this guy in... <clears throat> To squash him makes absolutely zero sense. I, I hear you, but you're defending it as someone who was in the room when it happened, as you've reminded me many times through these podcasts. But if you and I were to go sit in the other room and watch a new character debut on Raw the same way, you would look at me and you would say, boy, that'll get over. Maybe, maybe not. But I would also be able to understand a thought process of why they did it. And understand that, okay, what if... What if you tried on something else and did it differently? And again, the predictable thing would have been, hey, have these guys come in, have them go over. Instead of, why don't we tell a story? Why don't we have people wondering, well, what the hell now? These guys come over. They're fresh off of WCW. They're coming in. Well, of course we're going to put them over. Oh, shit. What do they do now? And you tell the story of them getting back in. What do they do now? And on top of that, the real life situation of Eddie dislocating his elbow in the middle of the match. Right. And knowing (laughs) that he's screwed with his bones sticking out of his arm and going, oh, crap. When you've got now you're you are reshuffling the deck going, well, what the hell do we do now? And it is a completely different story from that point forward. So let's talk real quick about the individual guys. Um, soon after they debut, Dean Malenko uh, wins, uh, I guess you guys were calling it like the light heavyweight title at the time. And um, he hangs around for a while, wrestling guys like Scotty Too Hotty and uh, stuff like that. And then there's a little bit of a feud with Guerrero and Saturn uh, that involved China and... Um, Anyway, talk to me about Dean Malenko. It feels like his WWF career was not quite what it could have been on screen. Of course, he was there for a long time. I think he's even wrestled through like 07. 
Uh, he's still an agent with the company now. Been mm-hmm. with them as long as I can remember. I guess from that day, from 2000 on, so 16 years now. Uh, not a bad run. Not a bad run at all. Still an agent. Still doing a great job for him. But on screen, he never had the success to me that he did in WCW. Why do you think that was? Or do you disagree? Well, I don't think there was as big of an emphasis on the light heavyweights in WWF. And it was more seen as, you know, maybe Dean can bring that division up. And I don't, I don't know that that audience really ever got behind the, the cruiserweights or the light heavyweights. It is a division. I hope they do now with their cruiserweight division, but you know, that's still yet to be seen. He, um, he was off TV pretty soon after he was there. Uh, and who Dean Malenko and, and was around briefly for the, um, uh, the invasion. And then I know, you know, he did some memorial shows and stuff, uh, doing, you know, occasional matches in 05. And, uh, I, I just don't think that Dean got maybe the rub that he had hoped on camera. Let's talk a little bit though about, you know, obviously we're building to the two that everybody really wants to hear about, but Perry Saturn is another guy who I don't think really shook out the way a lot of people would have imagined. Uh, he just recently reemerged and, and, uh, it's come out that he is dealing with some traumatic brain injuries. So prayers go to Perry from everything I've ever heard. Super nice guy. Great guy. Really nice guy. A hero in certain aspects for, you know, what he's done for people. Um, but he had some substance issues along the way. I think, can you kind of talk a little bit about what sidetracked him? And I I know that, um, a lot of people are going to want to ask. So I want to ask, he beat up that Mike Bell guy pretty good. Um, and I think his brother's the one who did the bigger, faster, stronger documentary, but it was a jobber match, a squash match. I know I shouldn't have said that it was an enhancement match, uh, for Perry Saturn and he just ran through him. Do you remember that at all? I, I actually do remember that. And it was, you know, you couldn't ask for a nicer guy in Mike Bell. Um, great guy, had been around for a while, and it was it was uncalled for. And Perry did beat him up. I think Mike had, had missed a move or something, and Perry dropped him on his head and, and did beat the shit out of him. I do remember that. Um, and I, I remember that because I actually just saw it. Somebody <laughs> sent it to me. Uh, not long ago. So were you in Gorilla when that happened? I probably was. So when you see it going on, are you flipping out? Not happy. And I'm, I'm sure the agents talked to him uh, after that match. But it was, you know, I remembered it definitely when I saw it. It was it's just, it's unprofessional. It's, just to, to take advantage of somebody like that and, and somebody that, that's there giving you their body. Right. And, and then just take advantage of them because they screwed up a spot. You know, shit happens. Be professional about it. Move on and, and move Didn't Perry forward. say he's something like he he was knocked unconscious for a minute or he was blacked out or something? That Mike Bell was? Well, or I, th- that Perry I was. think Perry was. Or I think he said he was. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure Mike was. I mean, it looked like Mike yeah, was out, the of shit out of him. Yeah. You know, this is a weird question to ask. But when a guy, you know, gets taken advantage of like that, especially an enhancement guy, does the company try to slide something extra in their envelope as a... Hey, sorry about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's unfortunate. I mean, it really is. And, and that was, you as the company have to feel like shit, man, I don't want, I didn't want that. And I feel bad. I didn't do it, but 
I got yes. to do something nice for the guy, and it feels dirty to give him more money, but I kind of feel like I should give him more money. But you want to take care of the guy and make sure he's okay. Yeah, and let him know that, hey, uh, That's, yeah. sorry about that. Yes, without a doubt. Um, is there also probably a better ch- This is weird, but there's probably a better chance of that guy getting booked again in the future. I mean, hey, you took one for the team there. We didn't. Well, Mike was Mike was used whenever we needed guys anyway. Anytime you're on the West Coast? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, he was originally from, um, I think he's from Massachusetts. Yeah, or I think so. Like yeah, somewhere in the Northeast. And we used to use him there all the time. Then he moved out to the West Coast. But uh, great guy. Great guy. He's, he's not with us anymore. But yeah. he, he was a stand-up guy. And he was a hell of a hand. And he was a good guy to have around the locker room. Episode 9 is the first something to wrestle with that had to do with just one event. Just one pay-per-view. And in this case, WrestleMania 7. Hogan versus Warrior, and a lot of fun sidebars as well as a full backstage story. So this uh, this intermission period here, this is kind of famous, uh, you know, when you did it for house shows and live events because this would be the Hulk Hogan spot a lot of times where you would have a really good match as the last match on the card, but Hogan would work right before the intermission. The rumor being so he could get back to the hotel and do his room service and oh all that God. and beat the fans out of the crowd and beat the traffic and not be mobbed and yada, yada, yada. No, folks, it was when you're going to do a return so that you could have Tickets whatever you're going to do and you can come back and announce the return off of an angle that you would shoot in that match. And then when you come back for the return, if it was the blow off, it, it would be the last match. But the- no, it wasn't so he could go back and get room service. He used to say it is. So well, I'm sure that's what he did. Well, that wasn't why he was put in that spot. So he didn't request to be in that spot, you don't think? He was put... I just explained why he was put in that spot. Okay. When we had a hot match that we were coming... The, the exact same reason why Warrior and Andre the Giant were put on in that spot when they went, when we were going to do the return. They were put in that spot so you could come back later on and announce... Next time that we are here in the Von Braun Civic Center, it will be one-on-one, and you announce the return off of the angle you shot earlier in the night. All right. And then they come back. It wasn't so, well, you know what? Room service stops at 8. We need to get those guys out of here so they can get their egg whites. Um, the first match back after intermission has a nickname that I've heard. Can you share that? Popcorn match. Explain to our listeners who may not be familiar why it's the popcorn match. Because people went out to get popcorn and they're coming back from getting their popcorn. What type of match would usually be in the popcorn match position? A slower starting match. One that's going to build, put a little time in, get people back to their seats. And the match chosen here is, uh, well, let's talk about intermission first. Uh, they have the Undertaker uh, measuring Regis with a tape measure. This is pretty fun stuff. Then there's the demolition promo. By this point, Bill Eighty is gone. It's just Crush and Smash here. Uh, they're really winding things up. There wouldn't be uh, much more traction to demolition. This is their last WrestleMania. And then they interview their opponents, which are uh, Tenru, Tenru and Katow. I'll say Katow right? Yep. And uh, maybe a little racist here. Because Regis is uh, trying to communicate with these guys who don't speak any English, but they they acknowledge Toyota and Isuzu. Can they get away with that now? I doubt it. It's pretty amazing. Um, 
this demolition match seems a little out of place. I mean, it's just kind of out of nowhere. Uh, how do you guys come to this to be a WrestleMania match and, and demolition loses? This is the first time I remember seeing a power bomb in the WWF. I'm probably wrong on that, but it's the first time I remember seeing it. Demolitions done in September of this year, I believe. And they lose to Tenru and Katow in four minutes. Do you remember, you know, the, I, I know you guys had some sort of SWS working agreement uh, and it feels like WCW at this time is playing follow the leader. They're doing some stuff with new Japan. And a few months after this, you would have a huge show with these guys. Uh, I think Tenru tagged with Hogan against LOD and you guys had like record ticket prices and made a huge gate in Japan, but I don't really hear about that going on much further. What happened here? Well, simply it. it had a working relationship with Tenru. Tenru was starting his own company in Japan. Uh, Koji Kitao was a sumo wrestler that had turned pro, and they wanted to make him an international star. So he is in Japan. He's portrayed as so big that he's got this big match with another Japanese superstar, Tenru, who was a big name in Japan, to come over to America and be in WrestleMania. It's just simply a working relationship, put a good light on them, and we were going to Japan. So it was a way to just strengthen that that agreement with them. And it was more that particular segment, that particular match was more important to Japan than it was per se to the show or really have any meaning in WrestleMania. But internationally in Japan, it, it had a lot of meaning. Uh, before we talk about the Katao situation why is demolition winding up like at one point demolitions pretty damn over um what 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 do you think changed when crush was interjected it wasn't the same or it was just time well it's just time i mean it's like i love it when people say well why'd you why'd you guys the dream (laughs) you know baby it's just getting hot you're gonna cut it off but everything runs its course you can't have demolition be the dominant tag team forever there comes a time that it's you got to bring something new in. Yeah, it's their time. That hell of a run. It's just their time. Well, it looks like their time is up. We can't see them. Katow's time is now. Katow, uh, famous maybe. I don't know when we'll talk about it again for trying to uh, shoot on earthquake later this year at the Japanese show that we referenced a minute ago. Um, so when, when, when they go, when WWF at the time goes to Japan, they match these two guys up, uh, probably because, uh, John Tenta was, was a pretty successful sumo and had some real name recognition in that sport. And since Katow is kind of the man over there for that, uh, this is a natural fit, but then in the match, he kind of goes in business for himself. It's on YouTube. If you'd like to see it, do you have any memories of that? Cause I don't know when we'll ever talk about that again. No, I just remember when it happened, and and were you, you at know, that show? Nope. But uh, earthquake was John Tenta was a big sumo name over there. Katow was a young sumo had been a big name, and it was there it was young versus new, and Katow. You mean young versus old or new? Young versus, versus <laughs> yeah, yeah, young versus old. Um, but Tenta wasn't that old. You know, he looked like it cause he was balding, but, but Tenta still had it. 
And Katow wanted to, to test the old timer. And Katow's the one that left the ring. And, 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 when he, and when he rolls out of the ring after shooting on him, he picks up a mic and in Japanese says something like, wrestling is fake. And it's essentially, but he didn't want to get back in there with the fake wrestler. Did never he? got back in there and never wrestled again. Was a was essentially blackballed from wrestling after that. So this is his his last WrestleMania too. Yes, it was. WrestleMania continues. We go to match number ten on the card. Number nine on television. The Big Boss Man is going to take on Mister Perfect here for the Intercontinental Title. And this is an interesting match to me because the Big Boss Man. Looked better than ever for this one. Um, Both guys did. Yeah, really an entertaining match. Do you have any uh, any memories of this one? It was just a great match. You know, it had been built up with Bobby Heenan insulting the big boss man's mom. And we shot some very entertaining vignettes about Mrs. Boss Man. She was a good sport. And culminating, you know, culminating here. Perfect Intercontinental Champion. It was bringing Andre back out to kind of avenge breaking up with Heenan and anointing the big boss man. It was a hell of a match. It was it was really a great match. Uh, real quick, I want to dig into a little bit more about the big boss man. He's in phenomenal shape here. Why didn't he get more of a push? Uh, it seems like he debuted, and um, well, you're fired up at it, but I mean, he debuted and, and then goes on some, some successful loops with Hogan on house shows, even some cage matches. And then he does some tag stuff with Akeem, but he gets himself in great shape here. He's super over. He doesn't get the win and he's programmed with the Mountie at SummerSlam. What would have been the harm in giving him a title run? A push. Jesus. That's a hell of a push. You come in, you work with the top guy, Hogan. Hell of a push. You're, you're, you're put right on top. Yeah, with, no, with I, the I, top guy. Then, then from there, you know, you go on and you form a tag team and you work with the two top guys, Hogan and Savage. <laughs> you go around. Bossman had a hell of a run. Great push. I, but my you point can't, is. You can't just push, push everybody all at the same time. The spotlight is only so big. So, you know, Bossman had a hell of a run. He comes out of here with a victory. He didn't win the title, but he came out with a victory. He came out on top. He comes out with Andre anointing him and raising his hand. It's it's not always about, well, he didn't have the belt. Well, I'm just saying that because dur- during this run. What? The belt is a prop. Are you serious right now? I'm sorry. Do you want me to say the belt is magic? Well, a few minutes ago, when I said Jake had a white contact in, you got half hot about it, and now you're referring to the Intercontinental Championship title belt. <laughs> it's a prop. Ma- made by Reggie Parks. That's a prop. It's a prop, yes. Believe it or not, they're a prop. I don't know what to say to you anymore. Sure you do. You'll think of something. Episode 10 about the working relationship between ECW and WWF before ECW folded is a fascinating one. And it's one that has a lot of contentious points about from a lot of people, not just Bruce and not just Conrad. So make sure to check it out. But one thing I always dug about that period was ECW showing up at WWF events. And Bruce tells the story of one of those first encounters and the most memorable possibly And the fact that he and Paul Heyman 
had a safe word. Also, Bruce talks about why he will never, ever work The Undertaker ever again. We wanted an honest to God, oh shit moment. So, so when you said you were asked you know, <laughs> to do this, who asked you to do it? Well, let's go back to the only people that knew about it. And who the hell do you think would have asked me to I'm just not curious, tell anybody? Why, Vince. Why, Vince asked me not to share it with anybody. Why would Vince? Because for that reason, I just explained. Okay. We want a real reactions from people. It just seems odd. And if everybody knows about it, then they're waiting for it. You're, you're setting up a spot, and you're not getting a true reaction from people. Sure. So that, that's the reasoning behind it. But the one thing that I did do, because John Layfield is a big strapping Texan and crazier and I'll get out, I wasn't sure what the hell would happen if 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 John got a little too close to these guys and, and something were to take place. So I told Savio Vega, I said, listen, no matter what happens out there, I don't give a shit if they come over the railing, no matter what happens. You tie that big cowboy up, and you do not let him touch anybody. And I'm putting that on you. You're the one in charge out there because they were in a strap match. And I said, so when if you guys get out in the ring, out, outside of the ring, or anything happens, you tie that cowboy up, and you don't let him get involved. So based on the way you explain that, he has to think uh, maybe there's something up here. A smart guy would probably think, okay, they're going to do something, right? Well, the idea was was when um, uh, Savio and Bradshaw were outside of the ring, and I knew the spot for Sandman to get up and spit beer on Savio. And I had security there, and I had people there, and I told them if they so much as breathe in the wrong direction or anything else, I want them taken out. So when Sandman spit, that was their cue to get him the hell out of there. Savio did his part. He kept Bradshaw away. Bradshaw's looking. Brad in the the camera crew. The, the camera shots were so that you saw it, but you didn't see it. So it was framed, so you would see it. But then we didn't go to it, so it didn't look like a work, and that this was a plant. What I didn't really anticipate, I did, but I didn't. I thought Paul would would have a little bit better control than he did, and and knowing Paul, um, after that, I didn't give him a whole lot of rope. But they stayed down there too long, and it made me come down and made Jerry Briscoe come down and uh, Rene Goulet and a few other agents. And Paul and I had a safe word. (laughs) that if if it got too heavy and I needed them to just get the hell out of there to get the hell out of there if if I said this one word to him. Whose idea was a safe word? Who do you think? We uh, must have a safe word in case things get out of hand and you are ready to abort. You just look at me and you say, hmm, Bockwinkle, and I will know that it is time to go. So... Uh, okay, yeah, I got it, man. And um, so they get down there, and they took it a little too far. But what I didn't anticipate is when the agents got involved and the guys and Dreamer and, and Sandman are really getting everybody riled up, and you feel the crowd, man, and it was hot. Uh-huh. That It was hot. It was good. Well, when I get down there, my fat ass can't get over the rail 
to get on the other side of the railing, and Jerry Briscoe is there, and Briscoe jumps over the railing, and I grab Jerry, and I said, go get in Heyman's face and tell him Bruce said, Bockwinkle, get the fuck out of here. And there was that moment where Jerry Briscoe turned and stared at me, and if looks could kill, I would have been dead about a hundred times. Because Briscoe was ready to kick somebody's ass. Sure. And in the middle of it, I'm basically saying, hey, Jerry, it's, it's all the work, man. Just uh, calm down, big boy, and, and go do this. Briscoe didn't speak to me for three days after that. Wow. Did not speak. He was so mad. The other thing I didn't anticipate was when I got backstage, the boys were – all they were all at the gorilla position and they all wanted to come down and kick everybody's ass. And I got snatched by uh, a big six foot, ten and a half redheaded dead man and taken into Vince's office and said, you need to tell me right now, was that planned? I'm like, yeah. And he says, well, in the future, you need to smart somebody up back here because you almost had a damn riot. Right. But Mark, being Mark, kind of sensed that uh, we had it under control and that it was probably a work. But he was pissed that that I didn't at least clue him in on what the hell was going on so that the guys in the back weren't coming out and doing something crazy. Did you ever work uh, Undertaker ever again? Hell no. <laughs> Before you get out of here, you need to make Valentine's Day easy. It's a breeze, and it doesn't get any easier, any more impressive, or any more affordable than IHateStevenSinger.com. These gold dip roses, man, they're legit. I've given one to my grandmother, to my mom. Now our kids have them. Of course, my wife has one. People love these things. And let me tell you, if you're just going to send regular flowers, yes, she's going to love them, but in a few days, they're sitting at your curb. They're in the trash can. They're gone. This thing will sit in her office. She's going to get lots of play with it at the office. People are going to say, oh my God, what is that? It's a rose that was dipped in gold. Where'd you get that? My husband got it for me. My boyfriend got it for me. You're going to get credit for a long time. And these things start at just 59 bucks. It's a real rose that's been dipped in real 24 karat gold. You can even send like a signature love note. If you're not sure what to put, they've even got options for you. Can, you can go ahead and select that are just great. They're going to make her feel good. It's shipped for free. What are you waiting on? Valentine's Day is a no-brainer, and it starts at just 59 bucks at IHateStevenSinger.com. Go look at it right now. You'll be glad you did. IHateStevenSinger.com. Thank you once again for joining us on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. I hope you enjoyed all the clips and maybe even heard something you might have missed the first time. I'm Matt Kuhn, and you can check me out at TheThemeGuy.com. If you need a theme for your podcast or you need a theme for your YouTube channel that's copyright free, or if you're a wrestler looking for some unique and customized music, hit me up at thethemeguy.com. But for all the rest of you, it feels like uh, it's about that time. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And we will see you next week with Sherry Martell right here on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, 
it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.